Hello, campus cronies, and welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, former college professor, current college administrator, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. This episode is rated a 5. So, May the 4th is a significant date for numerous reasons. For some, it's more of a happy date on the calendar that represents a nod to the iconic Star Wars franchise and a play on words for, may the force be with you. But for Kent State University in Ohio, May 4th has a much more serious, significant, and somber meaning. On May the 4th of 1970, members of the Ohio National Guard fired shots into a crowd of students who were protesting the Vietnam War. As a result, Four students were killed and nine were injured. This episode is simply titled The Kent State Shootings. So without further ado, let's get started. Though the story I am going to tell you today specifically took place on May 4th, 1970, I need to first set the scene and describe the atmosphere and climate, particularly among college students at the time. Richard Nixon was the president, and he had just been elected in November of 1968. As part of his campaign for election, Nixon had promised to bring an end to the Vietnam War. While the U.S. involvement appeared to be winding down at first, the U.S. invaded Cambodia in April of 1970, in turn doing the opposite of what Nixon had promised and ultimately prolonging, or more like widening, the Vietnam War. Nixon officially announced this decision on television on April 30, 1970, and the next day, on Friday, May 1st, anti-war sentiment began ringing out across the country on numerous college campuses, sparking intense protests and rallies. I do want to take a minute and point out that these protests and rallies were usually peaceful. According to Ohio History Central, they typically included the burning of draft cards, peaceful marches, Sometimes U.S. citizens would flee to Canada to avoid the draft, and some even remained in college, which also sometimes prevented being drafted. At Kent State, specifically, an anti-war rally was held at noon on May 1, 1970, and it was held on the Commons, which was a large, grassy, park-like area in the middle of campus that was often a site for various types of student rallies and demonstrations, like the one they were having that day. During the rally on May 1st, students ignited fiery speeches against both the war and the Nixon administration, and according to the Kent State website, rally attendees even buried a copy of the U.S. Constitution to symbolize their beliefs that the Constitution had been murdered because Congress had never officially declared war. 
At the conclusion of the rally on May 1st, which was overall quite peaceful, attendees called for an additional rally to be held at noon on Monday, May 4th. So it was just over the weekend. So they have the one on Friday, May 1st, and then they were calling for another one on the following Monday. However, the rally from May 1st, that Friday, extended beyond just the campus of Kent State University. According to a 2020 50th anniversary story on CNN.com, students began peaceful protests in the streets of downtown Kent, near several bars and nightlife establishments. But those protests soon turned into violent confrontations between the demonstrators of the protests and local police. The Kent State website notes that, quote, Bonfires were built in the streets of downtown Kent. Cars were stopped, police cars were hit with bottles, and some store windows were broken. The entire Kent police force was called to duty, as well as officers from the county and surrounding communities, end quote. As a result, the mayor of Kent, Ohio at the time, Leroy Satrum, declared a state of emergency, and he ended up contacting the Ohio governor's office for assistance, as well as made an executive decision to close down all the bars in an attempt to reduce alcohol consumption. The bars closing early, though, only angered the protesters more and increased the size of the crowd. Eventually, however, law enforcement was able to get a handle on the crowd after using tear gas that forced people to disperse from downtown and head back toward the campus of Kent State. The downtown scene was officially cleared and calmed and quieted by about 2.30 a.m. The next day, on Saturday, May 2nd, Mayor Satrum asked the governor to send the Ohio National Guard to Kent. Sources say the mayor made this decision after meeting with city officials and ultimately fearing that local law enforcement would not be able to adequately handle the potential disturbances, particularly after the chaos that had ensued in downtown Kent the night before. The mayor officially made the request at 5 p.m. on May 2nd, and by 10 p.m. that night, just five hours later, the Ohio National Guard had arrived to the campus of Kent State University. But when they did arrive, they discovered a quite tumultuous scene. On campus, adjacent to the commons area, sat a wooden building which housed the Army Reserve Officer Training Corps, or ROTC, at Kent State. The Ohio National Guard found it ablaze with over 1,000 protesters surrounding the building. Now, there is some controversy regarding how the fire actually started in the first place, but it was highly speculated that radical protesters ignited the blaze, which ultimately caused the building to burn to the ground. It is believed that protesters started the fire, particularly because some tried to interfere with the firefighters' efforts to extinguish it. And by interfere, I mean some sliced the hoses that firefighters were using to spray water on the fire. Plus, many of the protesters were cheering on the fire as it engulfed the building. Needless to say, there was a lot of confrontation going on between the protesters on campus and members of the Ohio National Guard, which resulted in more tear gas and numerous arrests. By Sunday, May 3, 1970, nearly 1,000 National Guardsmen had filled the campus of Kent State, which made the college look a lot like a military war zone. Regardless, though, many students did speak with the members of the National Guard, and they did so quite amicably, according to the Kent State website. But that changed when the governor of Ohio at the time, James Rhodes, spoke at a press conference on campus. During the press conference, Governor Rhodes made some disturbing comments directed toward the protesters. He publicly proclaimed that the protesters were being unpatriotic, and he said, quote, 
They're the worst type of people that we harbor in America. I think that we're up against the strongest, well-trained, militant, revolutionary group that has ever assembled in America. End quote. Also at the press conference, Governor Rhodes announced that he planned to seek a court order declaring a state of emergency. Though he never followed through with that declaration, the damage had been done. People took him at his word, and they were under the impression that a state of martial law was being declared, meaning it was assumed that the National Guard would take control of the campus rather than the university leaders and administration. Also, from that point on, the governor declared that all rallies on campus were banned. This, of course, enraged the protesters even more, and once again, according to the Kent State website, quote, rocks, tear gas, and arrests characterized a tense campus, end quote. So that brings us to the day of the massacre, as some have called it, on Monday, May 4th, 1970. That morning, before the rally was scheduled to start at noon, university officials attempted to inform the campus that the rally was prohibited. In efforts to do this, they printed and distributed 12,000 leaflets informing students that all rallies, including the one that day, were prohibited as long as the National Guard was in control of the campus. Regardless, though, students either completely ignored the warning or didn't get the warning, and a crowd began to gather in the commons area by 11 a.m. that day. By noon, the crowd had grown to nearly 3,000 people, a mix of students and community members. According to the official History Channel YouTube channel, 500 of the 3,000 people were protesting, 1,000 were cheering the protesters on, and 1,500 were watching the protests as spectators. At the same time, though, across from the Commons area near where the now-burned-down ROTC building was located stood about 100 members of the National Guard, all of whom were armed with lethal M1 military rifles. By this time, however, it was speculated that the rally attendees were not so much protesting the war anymore, though, I mean, clearly strong anti-war sentiment was still very much alive. But on this day particularly, their focus seemed to have shifted a bit, and they began more or less protesting the very presence of so many National Guard members on campus. I mean, seriously, this situation called for that many soldiers? Unlike Vietnam, Kent State was not a war zone, so I definitely see where the protesters were coming from. Anyway, shortly before noon, the highest-ranking officer of the Guard who was on campus, General Robert Canterbury, ordered the crowd to disperse. From those orders, a Kent State police officer made the official dispersing announcement with a bullhorn. But, as you can probably imagine, that simple announcement amongst literally thousands of people did little to nothing to break up the crowd. So, that Kent State police officer, along with a few members of the Guard, tried a different tactic. They loaded up into a military jeep and drove around the commons area, like telling everybody through the bullhorn to disperse, that the rally was banned. But the demonstrators responded by hurling rocks at the jeep and angrily shouting and chanting things such as pigs off campus at those inside the vehicle, which actually forced the jeep full of guardsmen and the officer to retreat. Next, General Canterbury ordered the guard to get their weapons ready, to get them locked and loaded. Meanwhile, they began launching tear gas canisters into sections of the crowd as other members of the guard marched across the commons area in effort to clear out the demonstrators. 
These efforts did not shut down the rally, though, and instead, many demonstrators headed up a steep hill on campus, known as Blanket Hill, and then they made their way down the other side into the parking lot of Prentice Hall, and they gathered on a practice football field that was adjoined to that parking lot. As students did this, many of the guardsmen followed the students onto the field, but they ended up being kind of trapped when they did get onto the field because of a fence that enclosed it. The guardsmen remained on the practice field for about 10 minutes or so before they had had enough. The Kent State website notes that the rock throwing and angry shouting had reached its peak at this point, and several members of the guard could be seen huddling together to shield themselves from the flying rocks and angered crowd, while other guardsmen knelt down and pointed their weapons. But it is important to point out that no shots were fired at this time. Not yet, anyway. Eventually, guardsmen on the field began retracting and retracing their steps as they headed back up Blanket Hill toward the other side. But as they arrived atop the hill, 28 or 29 sources vary, but at least 28 of the 70 or so members of the guard suddenly turned around and began firing their weapons. Remember, they were M1 rifles, deadly M1 rifles. Many fired into the air or the ground, but a few of them, unfortunately, fired directly into the crowd. In total, between 61 and 67 shots were fired in a 13-second time span. If that doesn't say war mentality, then I don't know what does. As a result of that 13-second crossfire, four Kent State students were killed. Jeffrey Glenn Miller was standing just 270 feet from the guardsmen on an access road that led to the Prentice Hall parking lot when a bullet struck him in the mouth. Allison B. Krause was standing in the Prentice Hall parking lot, 330 feet from the guard members, as she was shot on the left side of her body. William Knox Schroeder, who was also standing in the parking lot, about 390 feet from the guardsmen, was hit in the left side of his back. And Sandra Lee Schuer was pierced by a bullet on the left front side of her neck as she was standing in the parking lot as well, also about 390 feet away from the guardsmen. All of the students who were killed were between the ages of 19 and 20. But here's the thing, though. Out of the four students who were killed, only two of them were actually protesting. Those students were Jeffrey Miller and Allison Krause. But the other two, William Schroeder and Sandra Schuer, were just bystanders, onlookers in the crowd. In addition, nine other Kent State students were injured during the gunfire, most of whom were in the Prentice Hall parking lot, but a few were standing on Blanket Hill. Joseph Lewis was standing the closest to the guardsmen, only about 60 feet away. The Kent State website describes him as standing still with his middle finger extended. <laughs> um, does that sound to y'all like it does to me? I'm pretty sure Joseph Lewis was standing there flipping the bird to the members of the Ohio National Guard, and I can't say that I blame him. But nonetheless, Lewis was shot in his right abdomen and lower left leg. Thomas Grace was also standing about 60 feet away, and he was shot in his left ankle. John Cleary, over 100 feet away, was struck in the upper left side of his chest. Alan Canfora, who was 225 feet away, was shot in his right wrist. Douglas Rentmore was 330 feet away, and he was hit in his right knee. James Russell was standing about 375 feet from the guardsmen and was shot in his right thigh and the right side of his forehead. Robert Stamps was about 500 feet from the guardsmen, and he was hit in his right butt cheek. <laughs> That's not funny. It just, I think I should have said buttocks there, so I'm 
My apologies. <laughs> and finally, Donald McKenzie, who was standing the furthest from the guardsman at about 750 feet away, was shot in the neck. Now, if you are keeping count, I've only listed eight of the nine survivors. That's because this last person I'm going to tell you about was the most severely injured of the nine surviving students. That student was Dean Kaler, who was shot in the small of his back when he was standing approximately 300 feet away from the guardsman. That one shot from one of Ohio's very own National Guard members left Kaler paralyzed from the waist down. Y'all, that one shot left him as a paraplegic for the rest of his life. But firing their weapons didn't stop the guardsmen or the protesters by any means. The chaos continued as the guardsmen made their way back to the commons area from Blanket Hill, and the scene was now more hostile and intense than ever. When the crowd realized what had happened, that the National Guard wasn't there to just intimidate with their M1 rifles, but to actually use those deadly rifles, the crowd of protesters became even angrier and more aggressive, and many were even willing to risk their lives to attack the Guardsmen. But thank goodness for faculty members who often have pretty great relationships and rapport with their students. Because several faculty marshals, led by Professor Glenn Franks, pleaded with the National Guard members to let them talk with the protesters, let them talk with their own students. And then on the other side of that, the faculty also begged their students to not risk their lives any longer. After about 20 minutes of this intense emotional pleading, the faculty marshals were able to convince the students to vacate the commons. As ambulances and emergency vehicles made their way to campus to aid the injured students, Kent State President Robert White ordered the immediate closing of the university for the remainder of the day. But if you think the university opened back up for business and classes the next day, you'd be wrong. It actually remained closed for six weeks after the Portage County Prosecutor Ronald Kane ordered that the university be closed indefinitely under an injunction from a common pleas judge. According to the Kent State website, the university didn't open back up for in-person classes until the summer of 1970. Yes, I said in-person. You see, the students attending Kent State in the spring of 1970 still needed to finish the semester somehow, and some were even slated to graduate that very spring. So Kent State did what I'm pretty sure no college had ever done up until that point. Faculty members began teaching and engaging in educational activities through the mail. Yes, snail mail. But they also held some off-campus meetings as well. Apparently, the faculty at Kent State were the real MVPs in the aftermath of the tragic situation because they were left to help pick up the pieces. They came to the students' aid and went above and beyond to ensure their students received the guaranteed education that they had paid for. The Kent State website documents that faculty had to figure out a way to finish off the quarter with as much academic integrity as possible. So, students were advised to study independently, at home or wherever they were, until they were personally contacted by their professors. While some faculty assigned final papers as a completion of the courses, others lectured in churches and homes in both Kent and surrounding communities. One chemistry professor even had his graduate students make films of laboratory sessions, and the films were mailed to the students in the class to watch. Mind you, this was all before smartphones, y'all, and digital recording devices. So just imagine how much effort that really took. Also, faculty offered to talk with and help counsel students about the shootings, which helped the faculty in healing as much as it did the students. And I can only imagine how much 
this whole tragic event really did shake the whole university community, all of it to its core. So now I want to talk about all the major whys of this story. First off, why were so many college students across the country so outraged about the war? Well, according to a clip from the History Channel's official YouTube channel, it was because this age group was the primary group of people who were constantly seeing their brothers and sisters, their family, friends, and peers be drafted to a war that didn't make sense to them. Plus, an article from Ohio History Central noted that college deferments had recently ended, which means most college students had previously been exempted from the draft and service in Vietnam, but that rule or law or whatever had been thrown out, causing college students to protest the war more than ever before. But the biggest why, however, is Obviously, why did the members of the Ohio National Guard make that fatal decision to actually open fire anyway? Well, that answer is obviously a lot more complicated and controversial. According to a clip from the History Channel, the National Guard troops who opened fire that day claimed they did so after they themselves were shot at by a sniper. However, spectators at the protest denied that there were any gunshots whatsoever before the guard began their shooting fusillade. So, what else could possibly explain why these soldiers chose to use their weapons against an unarmed crowd? According to the Kent State website, there are two possible, yet opposing answers. One is that the guardsmen fired in self-defense, and the shootings were therefore justified. The other is that the guardsmen were not in any immediate danger, and therefore the shootings were unjustified. Regardless of the actual answer that I'm not sure we will ever really know, I can tell you how the numerous investigatory commissions and court trials played out that followed the tragic event. The guardsmen testified that they felt like the protesters and demonstrators were closing in on them, or advancing on them, in a way that made them fearful for their lives. In other words, they testified that they felt like there was a serious and immediate threat to their safety, and therefore, they were forced to open fire in self-defense. And apparently, the courts agreed with them. In the 1974 criminal trial against eight of the guardsmen, a district judge dismissed the case, which was indicted by a criminal grand jury. The judge even ruled at mid-trial that the government's case against the guardsmen was so weak that the defense didn't even need to waste their time presenting their case. Then, a 1975 trial had a slightly different outcome, though. In that trial, which was filed by the Kent State students and their families, who were survivors of the shooting, a jury voted 9-3 that none of the guardsmen were legally responsible for the shootings. However, this decision was later appealed, and the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled for a new trial due to the improper handling of a threat to a jury member, though I couldn't find what that threat entailed or any details of that. Eventually, the legal aftermath of the Kent State shootings came to an end in January of 1979, when the Ohio National Guard agreed to pay a total of $675,000 to the wounded students and their parents in an out-of-court settlement. But the money was not actually paid by the National Guard, rather it was paid by the state of Ohio. The total amount was estimated by the state for what it would cost to go to another trial. And they wanted to avoid that, so they paid the money. As part of the settlement, though, the Ohio National Guard submitted a statement, which came across as more of a declaration of regret than an apology or any type of admission of wrongdoing. That statement read, 
In retrospect, the tragedy of May 4, 1970 should not have occurred. The students may have believed that they were right in continuing their mass protest in response to the Cambodian invasion, even though this protest followed the posting and reading by the university of an order to ban rallies and an order to disperse. These orders have since been determined by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals to have been lawful. Some of the guardsmen on Blanket Hill, fearful and anxious from prior events, may have believed in their own minds that their lives were in danger. Hindsight suggests that another method would have resolved the confrontation. Better ways must be found to deal with such a confrontation. We devoutly wish that a means had been found to avoid the May 4th events culminating in the guard shootings and the irreversible deaths and injuries. We deeply regret those events and are profoundly saddened by the deaths of the four students and the wounding of nine others, which resulted. We hope that the agreement to end the litigation will help to assuage the tragic memories regarding that sad day. Now, although it has never been officially proven, some authors have theorized that while those group of National Guard soldiers were huddled together on the practice football field, remember we had talked about how some of them were huddled together, as, you know, they were dodging tear gas canisters and rocks flying at them, they conspired and came up with a plan to fire their weapons when they reached the top of Blanket Hill. This theory was speculated in several publications, including Joseph Kellner's and James Moonves's book, The Kent State Cover-Up, which was released in 1980, as well as Isidore Feinstein Stone's 1971 book titled The Killings at Kent State, How Murder Went Unpunished, and Peter Davies' book titled The Truth About Kent State, A Challenge to the American Conscience. Regardless of whether this theory is true or not, although I can definitely see where it could very well be true, I find myself thinking similar to an official report released in 1970 by the Scranton Commission, formerly known as the President's Commission on Campus Unrest, which was established by Nixon after the Kent State shootings. But in that commission's report, the investigators concluded, quote, The indiscriminate firing of rifles into a crowd of students and the deaths that followed were unnecessary, unwarranted, and inexcusable, end quote. This year, May 4th, 2022, marked 52 years since the shootings at Kent State University. To this day, the shootings continue to embody a significant symbolism of a great American tragedy to occur at the peak of the Vietnam War period, a time when the nation found itself starkly divided between political lines. On one hand, according to Ohio History Central, the shootings at Kent State did help to convince the public that anti-war protesters weren't just some drug-addicted hippies promoting free love. The public could finally see that anti-war protesters included middle and upper class people, educated people who felt very strongly about their political beliefs and moral ideologies. But there were plenty of Americans very influential Americans, who still disagreed with the protesters and demonstrators. So these powerful, influential people began a huge patriotism campaign in the U.S., which further illuminated the political divide. And don't think for one second that protesters went quiet after the Kent State shootings either. Oh no. In fact, it was quite the opposite. People who already opposed the war in the first place became even more angered and more outraged and more vocal than ever before, and militant activism broke out across numerous colleges and universities around the country. So much so that many colleges actually followed suit of Kent State and canceled classes for the remainder of the academic year because of fear that violent protests would erupt on their campuses as well. 
On May 9th, 1970, just five days after the shootings at Kent State, approximately 100,000 protesters gathered in front of the White House in Washington, D.C. to demonstrate not only their anti-war feelings, but also now their feelings about anti-college shootings by America's own. But unfortunately, their demonstrative efforts weren't heard loud enough, or at all for that matter. Because just 11 days after the Kent State shootings, and less than a week after the protest at the White House, tragedy struck another American college. On May 15, 1970, city and state police opened fire on a group of students at Jackson State College, now Jackson State University, in Jackson, Mississippi. As a result, two students were killed and 12 were injured. And that, my true crime family, is what the next episode of Campus Crime Chronicles will cover, the shootings at Jackson State. No, it's not necessarily a part two of this episode because it will be its own story. It'll have its own title because it deserves to be a story in and of itself. Plus, listeners won't necessarily have to listen to both episodes in order to understand the stories individually. It's more like if you listen to this one before the next one, it might just add a little more context to the overwhelmingly large picture of anti-war sentiments and civil unrest at the time. So, until then, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 31. As always, be sure to check out this podcast on social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. Or if you want to request a specific case or story, or just even drop a line and say hi, you can email me at campuscrimepodcast at gmail.com. Also, as I've been announcing in the last few episodes, I officially have a TikTok. I've been posting content on there for a few weeks now, and a lot includes campus crime stories you have never heard of. So go check out my TikTok. (laughs) Okay, well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. The cover art and logos for this podcast were designed by Brady Burns. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.